0: So as I enter my office, there is the drawing in the bottom right-hand corner of my memo board, an oak tree with a rope, a noose, the silhouette of what appeared to be a Black man, neck twisted to the side, and three words, just a reminder. And...
1: Welcome back to 20 Minutes of Winning. I'm Dave Ketchin with my good friend, Larry Thornton. Today, we're talking about winning through opposite thinking. And, you know, one of my favorite examples of this came from the sitcom Seinfeld. You remember that sitcom, Larry?
0: I do remember that sitcom very well. One of my favorites.
1: Mine, too. Um, you probably remember George Costanza sort of a perennial loser, hapless sort of guy. Um, they had an episode where he suddenly starts becoming very successful. And the reason he becomes successful is he does the opposite of what he thinks he should do. And it made for a very good comedy. But I think it's also a good way to think about ways to possibly win in life that folks wouldn't ordinarily think of, thinking in an opposite way. So um, in your book, Why Not Win? There's a really profound story where uh, in your workplace, someone had drawn a noose on your whiteboard. I was hoping you could tell us the story of what happened in that instance and, more importantly,
0: how you reacted to it. Well, I will tell you, Dave, that taking an opposite approach in all of life, uh, if I hadn't said it before, let me reiterate it if I have, most of what we will discuss as it relates to business is so appropriate for Life, can't overstress that. Very little of what we will discuss on any of these episodes are unique only unto business. It's life. And I'll give you some examples of those. But in reference to specifically what you're referencing, I must have been about 27 years old. I'm running the outdoor sign department at Coca-Cola. Uh, I don't know where I even got the wherewithal to think on such a level as to create an end result such as what occurred. So I'm coming in, I'm newly uh, appointed as manager of this department. I have an all white report. Now this is in 1979, so to give some context. So as I enter my office, there is the drawing in the bottom right-hand corner of my memo board, an oak tree with a rope, a noose, the silhouette of what appeared to be a black man, neck twisted to the side, and three words, just a reminder. And I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, I knew that I had some massaging to do in my department, but never did I think that. So what do you do in a case like that? Dave, let, let me just throw that back to you. If that were not necessarily you, but probably what would most people do in your mind?
1: I think the typical response would have been to erase it very quickly. Well, let's back up, take a photograph of it for some evidence, erase it very quickly and then go to the appropriate a human resources person and file a formal complaint. But you took a very different
0: approach. A very different approach, but very effective approach at the same time. And I didn't know how effective at the time, I'll have to admit that. Well, I did not erase that ugly little image, nor did I burst out of my office in a fit of rage, demanding to know who did it. I already knew who did it. By that time, I'd already mastered the styles of all of my artists. I knew their styles, I knew exactly who did it. So I left that little drawing up there day for two, three days. And at the end of a screen printing run, I remember turning to this gentleman, his name was Chris. And I said, Chris, why would you illustrate something so hideous as that of me? Uh, Well, I didn't mean anything, but man, I said, well, let's go in the office. Let's talk about it. So we get in the office and to his surprise, I complimented the perspective, the dimensions, the size, style, and he's got this kind of uh, melancholy look on his face. I said, but I think you make an interesting point. So let's erase that little drawing and I'd like for you to re-illustrate it and at this time I want you to cover the entire memo board with it and of course he I ain't gonna draw that again and I thought that was interesting that he would put it that way that he even thought it was worthy of that but I insisted we can talk to the president or we can re-illustrate so he grits his teeth and he erases it, and right in my presence, he reillustrates it, and he writes the same three words. So I leave this illustration up for a week, week and a half. Managers are coming in and out of the office, taking a look at this. They're not saying a word to me, but they're wearing them out to the extent, Dave, that Chris became so disenchanted, so moved by what he had done, that he came into my office nearly in tears asking if I would allow him to remove that drawing. He apologized, blamed his dad for the racist comments that he grew up under what happened when they saw Black people on television and what have you. And so I allowed him to remove it. Within a day or two, his mom wanted to meet me. Apparently he had discussed this story with his mother. She was a lunchroom manager at one of the local middle schools. We go out, one of the nicest ladies you would ever, ever want to meet. That meeting, of course, led to a dinner invitation to their home. So obviously my wife and I are kind of thinking about this experience. But at some point in our discussions of, 20 minutes of winning, we're gonna talk very specifically about a very special lunch that I had under another circumstance. But I make it in, we get through the niceties. They even ask me to say the grace. And it was a really, really wonderful evening, great food. And there's dad as described by his son, this racist dad, brother, sister, mom, and Chris, and we had a wonderful evening. The long and short of that story is when my son was born, this lady hand-stitched a christening outfit for my son. This dad hand-crafted a cradle for my son. we go to church When this gentleman passed the dad, I was there at the funeral Uh, and our families went on to become friends. And I'm not sure if I ever told you this piece of the story, but he was kind of down. His daughter was getting married and it was my pleasure to make a significant contribution to the success of that wedding. Uh, He's a great guy. He was a great guy when he did that drawing. But as I said in one of our opening introductions, there's so much more to us. When we change what we think, we change what we do. And I'd like to think that that gesture affected not only that gentleman, but that family and anyone that they should come in contact with to making this world a better place. I mean, that's my mantra. That is my approach uh, to this day.
1: Well, I think it's a fantastic story and um, just illustrates how profoundly we can have a positive impact if we think just a little bit differently and not not take the the easiest or the most obvious path. And um, what I think is really interesting about that situation that you just you touched on briefly, is that you had no idea what sort of positive effects would cascade from your decision. It was totally
0: unexpected. That is absolutely uh, true. Um, I'm convinced that if we are not evaluating on a constant basis what it is that we do on a daily basis. We risk the reality, if you will, that we're simply going with the flow. At some point, somebody ought to be saying to you from time to time, Dave, why did you do that? I can't tell you the number of times people have asked specifically in reference to that illustration, why did you do that? Well, if nobody's asking you that, then perhaps you might ought to reevaluate some of the things that you do because the normal, typical way in so many cases is not the way that's going to create a better circumstance for an individual, for a family, for a community, in fact, for our society.
1: When I read the story in the book, it reminded me of something that happened in a a different art form which is um, professional wrestling. I don't know if you were a professional wrestling fan growing up.
0: Well, I just remember getting a liking, taking a liking to it uh, when I integrated schools Uh, in our schools. I don't remember wrestling being a sports per se, but I kind of became interested uh, in this white school setting, Goodwin Junior High and Robert E. Lee. And so naturally having an appreciation for that, uh, yes, professional wrestling was something that I really thought was uh, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting sport.
1: Now, most people would think of it as just campy theatrics, but uh, it's actually a, a multi-billion dollar industry. Um it has long been dominated by what used to be called the world wrestling federation. Yeah. You might recall, uh, Bruno Sammartino, he was their champion for about uh, 10 years. Uh, Hulk Hogan was also uh, their champion for a number of years. So, uh, in the nineties, they were just absolutely dominating the industry and there was a Southern based company called world championship wrestling that was owned by, uh, Ted Turner, who also started, yep. Also started CNN and a number of other companies. Uh, but world championship wrestling was really a small company. It was very much a David and Goliath type of situation. And so Ted Turner put a guy named Eric Bischoff in charge of WCW and, uh, this, Bischoff fellow was actually an announcer. He was not a business person by training. So he was, by his own admission, a little bit over his head. (laughs) But he said to himself, uh, you know, he's written books and been on podcasts and TV shows talking about this. He said to himself, how am I going to take on this multi-billion dollar behemoth? He ended up deciding, I'm going to make a list of everything that the World Wrestling Federation does in presenting their product. And I'm going to try to do the opposite. So, one of the things that the World Wrestling Federation did was they taped their programs, tape recorded their programs. Bischoff yeah. said, okay, all my programs are going to be live. And so maybe they'll be more exciting the World Wrestling Federation, most of their matches on TV were between a star and a guy who never won. They called those guys jobbers. (laughs) And then the matches between the stars would be reserved for pay-per-view events. So Bischoff said, you know what? I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to put matches between stars on TV for free. The result of these differences was that this upstart, this David taking on Goliath actually beat the world wrestling federation in the TV ratings, 83 weeks in a row.
0: How about that?
1: 83 weeks in a row, all through opposite thinking. So um, just to wrap things up here, we always like to have a couple of action items that we encourage people to take away. The first one is to learn from George Costanza, Larry Thornton, and Eric Bischoff. Take the obvious reaction to a situation and think about reversing it. Look at looking at it from 180 degrees difference. Um, The second one, which is a little more specific and I think a little more uh, profound is Maybe consider forgiving the unforgivable, you know people are very reluctant to forgive, but uh you were Absolutely. in a si- you were in a situation where uh Chris did something that most people would consider unforgivable, and uh you forgave him for that, and you guys subsequently developed a remarkable relationship, not just between you one on one but between
0: your families you know. <clears throat> A third component that I don't want to be lost on this audience. Uh, Bischoff, uh, you used the term just a moment ago, he was in over his head. Dave, I can't tell you how often. In fact, the bulk of my life has been all about being in over my head. I mean, imagine never having taken a business course, never having gone through a profit and loss statement to such an extent that when I get my first set of financials, I don't even know how to interpret them. In over your head and rising to the top. Bishop was not a promoter, you said. He was not a businessman, but he had passion. He had desire. Nothing of any great significance has ever been accomplished without enthusiasm. How easy would it have been to simply say, I'm an artist. I can't do business. Bischoff, I'm an announcer. I can't take on this. I will tell you that putting yourself in uncomfortable settings is where the growth and the development lies. Opposite thinking we're talking about? Opposite thinking was Bischoff saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it a go. And comfort can cause us to miss our end. In fact, there are countless examples of where we desire comfort over putting ourselves in a situation to do bigger, to be bigger, and to, uh, in the process, make life bigger and better for other people.
1: Well put, my friend. That's all we have time for today, so thanks for being here with me, and we'll look forward to doing this again. It's been great
0: being with you, my friend. Thanks.